Welcome and thanks for listening to Texas Tech Health Check from Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center. I'm your host, Melissa Whitfield. We want you to get healthy and stay healthy with help from evidence-based advice from our physicians, healthcare providers, and researchers. March is Brain Injury Awareness Month. According to the Brain Injury Association of America, every nine seconds, someone in the U.S. sustains a brain injury. One in every 60 Americans live with a traumatic brain injury-related disability. Here to talk to us about brain injuries is Dr. John Norbury, TTUHSE School of Medicine, Associate Professor and Division Chief of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. He is also Medical Director of Brain Injury at Trust Point Rehabilitation Hospital of Lubbock. Dr. Norbury explains what it means to have a brain injury, different types of brain injuries, symptoms of brain injuries, and treatment. Dr. Norbury, thank you so much for coming on our podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your expertise, and what you do at the Health Sciences Center? Sure. Thank you so much, Melissa, for inviting me to uh, take this opportunity to uh, share some of uh, what we're doing and uh, learn a little bit about brain injury. Uh, I came to uh, Texas Tech Health Sciences Center in June. So I'm an associate professor of physical medicine and rehabilitation and division chief of PM&R. And that's the field that deals with the diagnosis, prevention, and treatment of conditions related to disability, such as brain injury. Unfortunately, there's not enough providers to care for people with disabilities in West Texas, so I've been asked to start up a new residency program in this field so that we can train the the future physical medicine and rehab specialists or physiatrists to take care of this population. I'm also serving as medical director of the brain injury unit at Trust Point Rehabilitation Hospital of Lubbock. Well, coincidentally, March is Brain Injury Awareness Month. What does it mean to have a brain injury? So a brain injury is any sort of insult to the brain. And so typically in adults and and children, that would be due to some sort of trauma. A mild brain injury is defined as one where there's not an abnormality on imaging. And so the classic example of that would be a concussion. Then the more severe ones are ones where you have damage to the brain itself. This can take the form of uh, bruise to the brain or bleeding in the brain or other sorts of trauma that aren't as apparent but deal with damage to the neurons in the brain or the cells that we have in our brain. How common are brain injuries? There's about 1.5 million brain injuries per year in the United States, and the vast majority of those are mild brain injuries, such as a concussion that one might have on a, on a football team or in a car accident or that sort of thing. A smaller number of those brain injuries would be severe enough to warrant hospitalization or inpatient rehabilitation. So what, other than, as you said, those injuries, what would cause a brain injury? A couple different things. So the first thing is just the the trauma to the head. And so there's two different types of brain injuries. There's a closed head injury where the skull itself is not breached. And so that might be something where you have a car accident and you hit your head on the dashboard and you have bruising to the brain. And then an open head injury would be something like a gunshot head injury where a bullet actually pierces through the brain and causes direct damage. So those are the two mechanisms of brain injury. And then a, a third one would be sometimes 
times, babies during the delivery process, there can be brain injury related to lack of blood supply to the brain. And so that can lead, in some cases, to things like cerebral palsy. And I should add to that also that uh, in adults, sometimes you can have what's called an anoxic brain injury. This happens when somebody gets really sick and requires CPR or something like that, and they end up with not enough blood flow to the brain, and that causes a particular type of damage known as an anoxic brain injury. So you mentioned hitting our heads. Is there a difference in brain injuries depending on where we hit our head? Yeah. So different parts of the brain do different things. And so the most common brain injury would be one where your head goes forward and you hit your your head on something. So for example, if a person were to fall, they might hit their head on the ground at the, the front of the head right above the eyes. And then what tends to happen is you have something called a coup counter coup injury where the brain hits the front of the skull and then you go backwards and you hit the back of the skull. And so those two parts of the brain in the front would be the frontal cortex and in the back would be the occipital cortex are more commonly injured in that sort of brain injury. The reason why this is important is that frontal cortex, that part of the brain in the very front, is really important for things such as executive functioning. So long-term planning, social interactions, those higher level things that we do. And so it's not unusual for people with brain injury to have inhibition, where they can't control their emotions, uh, agitation, behavior difficulties, and things like that. So that's one example of where the, the mechanism or the location of the brain injury will impact what that brain injury looks like. And since you can have a brain injury pretty much anywhere in the brain, each brain injury is different in terms of how it impacts the person's uh, behavior. So I should be okay when I get in my car and I accidentally hit the side of my head because that happens. More often than I'd care to admit. Yeah, so that's a good point. So I think we all hit our heads in just daily life, and that's been going on for as long as humans have been human. And so there is a really nice mechanism built into all of our heads to protect our, our brains. And so the vast majority of times when you hit your head, there's enough cushioning to prevent any any injuries. It's just as with anything else, if it, if the the force is great enough, that'll overcome the natural defensive mechanisms that we have. So. Are people born with brain injuries? So yes, that can happen. So the the classic example of that would be cerebral palsy, which is defined as any sort of central nervous system or or brain injury that occurs in the first few years of life. And and that presents a little bit differently than than a brain injury in an adult. And the reason for that is because the child's brain is developing. And so in an adult, we're kind of done with our development. And so the, the injury looks different than if you have an injury as the child is progressing through milestones in terms of movement and cognition and, and things of that nature. Do brain injuries hurt? So often when you have a brain injury, it's in the context of trauma. So the trauma itself will hurt. So for example, if uh, somebody's skateboarding and they fall and hit their head, they'll have pain at the site where they, where they had the injury. The deeper parts of the brain itself actually don't have innervation. And so it's possible that if somebody had one of those anoxic injuries that I was talking about, they wouldn't have pain associated with it. 
But if you think about pain, pain is something that we perceive. And so any sort of injury to the brain can change that perception and can be perceived as pain. It's also not unusual after a brain injury for people to have headaches. And that's one of those helpful clues in terms of figuring out how severe the brain injury is. If If a brain injury is accompanied by headaches, you would think that might be a more severe injury than one where there isn't any pain other than pain at the site where where the head uh, hit something. So should we be concerned if we do have an injury and it doesn't hurt? I think that when the, the question of whether to be concerned or not is, a, is an important question. And I would say that if you have headaches after the injury, that would point towards a more severe injury. I think that the more important things probably in terms of being concerned would be other symptoms that indicate more severe damage to the brain. So, for example, if somebody's confused or they're drowsy or they have difficulty with their balance or difficulty concentrating or paying attention or disturbed sleep, those are all signs of a more severe brain injury that that needs medical attention. And the other thing that's really important to keep in mind is that if somebody's on blood thinners, they are much more at risk for a severe complication. And so recently, uh, Bob Saget passed away due to a, to a brain injury. And what was reported was that he hit his head and then he went to sleep. And I think that was scary for a lot of people because the thought was, well, goodness, how would you know if it was severe or, or not if you hit your head? And I think that when people have those symptoms that I talked about and they're on blood thinners, it's really important that you call somebody up, say, hey, I hit my head, have somebody come and check on you to to avoid, for example, bleeding in the brain that would would lead to, to more serious outcomes. How can we prevent brain injuries for ourselves if we can and also for adolescents? That's a great question. So there's no way that you can ever prevent brain injuries. Just by virtue of living, we're we're always at risk of it. Having said that, you know, when seatbelts became mandatory in cars, that really reduced our our risks. And so there are some some common sense things that can be really helpful. For children, making sure that they're in an appropriate child safety seat. I have young kids. I know it can be hard sometimes to get those things in and, and work with them and the kids don't always like it, but really make sure you pay attention to the manufacturer's instructions and use those appropriately. Also, for children, when they go outside on bikes and skateboards and things like that, you you would think, well, goodness, you know, falling from a skateboard down to the ground wouldn't be a big deal, but you can generate a lot of force in that way. And so always making sure that when kids go outside, they're wearing helmets, uh, when they're doing any sort of rollerblading or bicycling or or things like that. And same thing for for adults. I think that one of the most challenging things for me when I see patients at, at Trust Point Rehab Hospital is when I see somebody with a brain injury who was riding a motorcycle and wasn't wearing a helmet. And I know that all the pain that they have and the challenges their family had would have been prevented by a very common sense thing. So I think if there's one message I'd want to get out, if you want to get out and ride a motorcycle, that's wonderful. But please, please wear a helmet when you're you're doing that. And then also make sure that children are wearing helmets when they're out doing uh, sports. Now, this next question is a little bit, kind of a little bit personal, not exactly this question, but when I was little, my brother was crying and I picked him up and I dropped him. He was an infant. And 
then, you know, my mom said, oh, he's a baby. He's fine. He'll be fine. And then I kept seeing all these commercials about shaken babies that stayed with me my entire life. And I was wondering if that was, is shaken baby syndrome the same as dropping a baby or having a brain injury or how are they related? Are they related? That's an interesting question. I don't know that we totally know the answer, but I would say that certainly when whenever a child is shaken violently, that can create some injuries that are are very typical to that sort of that sort of thing. Some changes in the eyes, some changes in the brain. And unfortunately, that is something that, that we're sometimes called on to to care for. And then I think that also, you know, it's possible for a child who is dropped to have a brain injury that would be more similar to what we discussed earlier with that coup, uh, counter-coup injury. The, the thing that, that is in g- general true about children is that from a rehab standpoint, they do very, very well. And so because the, the child's brain is developing and there's lots of room for what we call neuroplasticity or the ability for nerves to, to change and grow and things like that, children do really, really well. And the sort of injury that would really be disabling for an adult might be something that a, a child would be able to weather just because they have so much reserve in terms of their, their brains and, and so much potential for healing. So. But I would I would say that, um, you know, children are very, very resilient. Um, they bop their heads during life. And if, you know, following that an incident like what you described, if there were no symptoms, there was no change in behavior, no difficulty concentrating, I would say that there was likely no damage to the to the brain in that event. So you mentioned rehabilitation. What is the treatment for brain injuries? There's different things that can be done. And so in the acute phase, meaning when that brain injury first happens, you know, there's there's things that, that can be done to, to address the issue. So for example, if there's lots of pressure building up in the brain, a surgeon has things they can do to relieve that pressure to, to save to save one's life. The next step after you kind of get through that initial phase and you know that the, the patient is uh, doing well would be the rehabilitation phase. And so a place like Trust Point Rehabilitation, where I serve as brain injury director, would use an interdisciplinary approach approach to get the best possible outcome. And we know that patients do much better when they get that sort of treatment. So what that would look like would be a physiatrist like myself. We could help to manage common complications. So for example, sometimes when patients have a brain injury, they're very sleepy or they don't want to participate. And so there's medications that we can prescribe that will help them to perk up, so to speak, and engage more with the rehabilitation. Also, and this can be very challenging for family members, sometimes patients will be very agitated. So like I said, that prefrontal cortex can get affected. Patients can be acting out. They can be hitting staff. They can be saying things that are are very difficult for families to hear. And again, we can, through a combination of medication and non-medication approaches, help to manage that behavior and and get them to the point where they can reenter society. Other uh, things that can come up can be spasticity. So that's when patients get tightness in their muscles. And we have lots of tools that we can use to address that complication. And so that's kind of the, the basic idea. You know, we know that exercise is really great for many conditions, but brain injury is no exception. So for example, if you have a patient who's very restless and kind of fidgety, well, we get them and we walk them, you know, around the unit, or we get them aggressive therapy, that just 
helps to kind of restore balance and, and get the best possible outcome. What can happen if brain injuries are left untreated? I am so happy you asked that question because this is this is something that is is very challenging. So in the severe brain injury world, that's unusual because people get admitted to the hospital and they, they get the treatment. What we see more commonly is that somebody has some sort of an incident. Either they get their head hit on the football team or they fall and hit their head and they go to the emergency room and the the x-rays or CT scans or MRIs are normal and the patient is sent out because they say, oh, there's nothing wrong with your brain, so you must be fine. And that leads to problems because then the patient goes home, they have difficulty concentrating, they're impulsive, they're not sleeping, and three or four years later, they show up in my clinic and they're divorced, depressed, and bankrupt because they had these brain injury symptoms, but were labeled as not having a brain injury because the imaging was negative. And so I think that that illustrates the dangers in not taking these things seriously. So talking about what happens if they're not treated. So the biggest risk factor for a brain injury is having a previous brain injury. So if somebody gets a concussion on the football team, it's really important that they see a sports medicine specialist or a physiatrist to make sure that they're not at risk for further concussions. Because like anything else, the more of these you have, the, the higher your chances of having impairment. And then I think that people are, if they're, if they're not treated, they're at risk for having depressive symptoms. You know, we have a, a suicide crisis going on right now that is, is just very, very challenging for communities. And so one of the symptoms of a brain injury can be depression. Making sure that people have the resources they need to get that treated appropriately can, can prevent those sorts of complications. Let's say, for example, someone had a brain injury that they may not remember. So years later, they have another brain injury. How are you able to detect that they've had a previous one? Or how can you tell that that may have led to problems years later? So that's something that, that your physician would pick up on a, on a history. And so if they can't remember actually having the brain injury, that would be challenging. I think the more common situation we see is that somebody's struggling with depression or anxiety or difficulty focusing. And when they present for that issue, the provider asks, hey, have you ever had a brain injury? And all of a sudden it clicks. Wow, I had that brain injury. And then after that, I started struggling at work. I started having difficulty in my personal relationships. And the pieces somewhat fall together after the fact. Is it ever too late to treat a brain injury? So uh, this is where the concept of neuroplasticity comes in. So when I was in medical school, we were taught you're born with all the nerve cells that you'll ever have and they just die and you decline until you, you pass away. And we now know that's not true at all. We know that brains have an ability to grow new nerve cells and we know that the nerve cells that you have can change. And that's true of people with brain injury or people without. So if somebody has symptoms of a brain injury years later, you know, again, depression, anxiety, difficulty focusing, 
there's techniques that can be used to help with that, such as psychotherapy, seeing if uh, medications can play a role, mindfulness and meditation. In other words, those things that help us all improve in brain health are always available to people with brain injury, no matter how long after the injury. How can we support people with brain injuries? So uh, when I see patients in the hospital or in the rehab unit, one of the best prognostic factors is when they have a supportive family. And so I think that when family members can, if they are in the hospital, can be there, can be supportive, can give them a sense of familiarity, that can be really helpful. I think that when somebody has that initial injury, if you're not sure whether to go to the emergency room or not, erring on the side of caution and getting medical attention is really helpful because it's not unusual that when someone has a brain injury, they don't have insight into the injury, but their partner or their parent or somebody notices a change in behavior. And so I think just keeping an eye on the patient, you know, uh, before they go to the hospital and helping them make that decision is a really great way to be supportive. And then if you're dealing with somebody who's had a severe brain injury, they finished rehabilitation, you know, just being patient and really keeping the long game in mind. So a lot of times when I see patients, I'll say, hey, you know, I recognize that on a day-to-day basis, this is very frustrating, but what I know is a month from now, you'll be better than you are now, and six months from now, you'll be better than you are one month from now. So if you have a loved one with a brain injury, helping them to take it one day at a time is a really effective strategy to to help them get through those challenging times that come with any illness, uh, brain injury being one example. Is there anything else that you'd like to add? I think just uh, reinforcing that prevention piece. I think that uh, making sure that we're all doing the things that we need to do to stay safe because, you know, brain injuries are a risk that we all have. But a couple common sense things can really make a big difference in preventing these injuries and, you know, helping people to have their highest possible quality of life. Well, Dr. Norbury, thank you so much for talking to us about brain injuries. It was my pleasure. Appreciate the invite. Thank you for listening to Texas Tech Health Check. Make sure to subscribe or follow wherever you listen to podcasts so you won't miss our next episode. This information is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice. Always seek immediate medical advice from your physician or your healthcare provider for questions regarding your health or medical condition. Texas Tech Health Check is brought to you by Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center and produced by Tierra Castillo, Susanna Cisneros, and me, Melissa Whitfield.